You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. It is Thursday, the 23rd of July. And as you can see, although some people have gone back to the office, I'm still here filming the show from my apartment. Because you see, I paid for the business edition of Zoom, and goddammit, I'm gonna get my money's worth. Anyway, on tonight's episode, the Spanish flu is back, Desi Lydic checks in on her uncle Rudy, and America gets its first racist president. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with coronavirus, the only thing living its best life in 2020. Over the past 24 hours, multiple states, including Texas and Florida, reported record COVID-19 fatalities. And for everyone who's asking what America is doing wrong, well, one viral photo might offer a clue. A tale of two countries, this picture is going viral for highlighting the difference in COVID-19 responses between the United States and Canada. At the top of your screen, a packed American tour boat at Niagara Falls carrying hundreds of people. You can see them in blue ponchos. The bottom is a Canadian one carrying just a half dozen tourists. They're the ones in red. The images show the two vessels passing each other earlier this month. Yep. Apparently, while Canadian boats at Niagara Falls have a passenger limit of six people, American boats are just bawling out. I mean, just look at how all of those Americans are packed together on that boat. I'm not even sure if that's mist from the waterfall. That could just be everyone coughing. Now, look, obviously, I'm joking, right? Those people might be safe because they're outdoors in the mist and the wind. I don't know. But still, this photo really is a metaphor for how differently the U.S. is treating this pandemic from all other countries. I mean, of all the things to risk dying for, looking at a waterfall is the worst choice until there's a vaccine. Stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. I will say though, I also feel like Canada's being a little too safe. I mean, come on, you guys have free healthcare. Live a little. And by the way, keeping boats from being overcrowded isn't the only thing Canada is doing to stop the spread of corona. The CDC in the Canadian province of British Columbia just released official health guidelines telling Canadians to try using glory holes for safer sex. Because they say the wall stops you from breathing on each other, but the hole keeps the magic happening. And if ever there was a sign, this is how you know coronavirus is really bad. When doctors are like, okay, go stick your dick in a wall, it'll save lives. Now look, I don't know about glory holes, but my personal advice is if you wanna be real safe, Everyone needs to have sex the same way Mike Pence does. What you do is you go in the bedroom first and then you lock the door behind you so nobody else can come in. Sex. Oh, and while we're on the subject, here's another tip. Guys, wear a mask over your balls, okay? It doesn't stop the virus. It's just no one wants to see your balls. They're like the bottom of a cupcake. The party's on top. Just hide that stuff. In other news, football is coming back, but the Washington Redskins or not. Effective immediately, the former Washington Redskins will now be called the Washington football team as they continue to look for a replacement mascot. According to ESPN, this is not the final name of the team, but they needed something in place before games begin this season. A new permanent name and logo is still in the works. I'm sorry, that is the laziest team name I have ever heard. I mean, they renamed a professional football franchise the same way you save phone numbers of people you just met. Uh, karaoke dude with the big ears who sings strange. 
Uh, okay, woman from the bar, idiot co-worker. Oh, let me change that. Idiot co-worker Michael Costa. For real, guys, the Washington football team? That doesn't sound like a professional organization. It sounds like they ran out of cash and now they can only afford the store brand version of team names. It's like when my mom couldn't buy us Cheerios, so instead she bought us oat circles. Oat circles, eat this in the morning. The only silver lining I can see for this name is that it's gonna be very helpful to people who don't follow the NFL. Yeah, cause now when someone asks you who you're rooting for, you can be like, uh, the football team? Yeah, and then you sound like you know what you're talking about. Oh, interesting choice. You're going with the football team. <laughs> yeah, I like when they do the ball. <laughs> but let's move on now to some news that's really out of this world. It's about space. Here this morning, it's an historic space race to Mars, the red planet. China launched its first ever mission to Mars this morning. A six-wheeled robot lifted off on the Long March 5 rocket from the island south of China's mainland. Details are top secret. China's not even releasing the rover's name. It should get there in orbit sometime in February, right behind the rover Hope, launched by the United Arab Emirates. That was on Monday. The U.S. expecting to launch its rover, Perseverance, from Cape Canaveral. It'll be next week. They're going to have a traffic jam up there. Wait, 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 wait. Why is everybody trying to go to Mars? I mean, there's never been a movie on Mars that ends well. Best case scenario, you lose a ton of weight because you're on an all-potato diet. Like, that's it. And also, is this the best time for space exploration? Come on, scientists. I know you want to have fun, but we need you focused on the pandemic. Now is not playtime. No Mars until you finish your corona. You finish your corona, scientist. You finish your corona, and then you can have Mars. Don't you look at me like that, young scientist. Moving on to politics. Yesterday, we talked about how a Republican congressman named Ted Yoho called Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a bitch in the halls of the Capitol building. Well, this morning, AOC fired back with both barrels. An extraordinary moment on the House floor just a few minutes ago. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about Republican Congressman Ted Yoho throwing expletives at her. I was minding my own business, walking up um, the steps, and Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. And in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a f***ing bitch. And I want to be clear that Representative Yoho's comments were not deeply hurtful or piercing to me because I have worked a working class job. I have waited tables in restaurants. I have ridden the subway. I have tossed men out of bars that have used language like Mr. Yoho's. Mr. Yoho mentioned that he has a wife and two daughters. I am someone's daughter too. And I am here because I have to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not raise me to accept abuse from men. And you know, I don't care what anybody says. I am glad AOC came out on the house floor and said exactly what that Congressman said to her, expletives and all. Because if you only hear about the story on the news, You've probably heard them say that Yoho used a derogatory language or an offensive term, or he made a decorum whoopsie. AOC is absolutely right. Time and time again, powerful men hide behind the fact that they have daughters as a way to shield themselves from accusations of sexism. It's almost like these dudes are at their gender reveal parties like, yay, it's pink. Oh man, I'm finally gonna have a political prop to excuse my bad behavior. Oh, this is the happiest day of my life. <laughs> 
But enough about sexist politicians. Let's switch things up and talk about President Trump. For years now, Trump has been bragging about how he aced a dementia test that he took back in 2018. And now he's been bringing it up every chance he gets. He talked about it with Chris Wallace. He replaced the White House portrait of Abraham Lincoln with a drawing of that elephant. And in an interview with Fox News last night, Trump went into the greatest detail yet on the test that he says proves he's a stable genius. And it was 30 or 35 questions. The first questions are very easy. The last questions are much more difficult, uh, like a memory question. It's uh, like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. So they say, could you repeat that? So I said, yeah. So it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. Okay, that's very good. If you get it in order, you get extra points. If you, okay, now he's asking you other questions, other questions, and then 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes later, they say, remember the first question? Not the first, but the 10th question? Give us that again. Can you do that again? And you go, person, woman, man, camera, TV. If you get it in order, you get extra points. They said, nobody gets it in order. It's actually not that easy, but for me, it was easy. They say, that's amazing. How did you do that? I do it because I have like a good memory because I'm cognitively there. Donald Trump is the only person who can talk about a cognitive test, but make me feel like I have brain damage. He's gone from bragging about his historic electoral college win to boasting that he can solve the puzzle in a Happy Meal? In fact, I almost feel like obsessing over a dementia test that you took two years ago is the real dementia test. Also, can we all agree that Trump is just naming things that he sees in front of him? Like, in that moment? <laughs> That's what he's doing. Person, uh, woman, uh, man, uh, camera, TV. I mean, anyone can, like, I, like any, you're not a genius if you can do that. Anyone can do it. Camera, chair, bookshelf dead body, TV. Oh, I'm a genius now too. What makes it even stranger that Trump keeps bragging about his score on this test is that the neurologist who created the test told the Washington Post, quote, it's not meant to measure IQ or intellectual skill in any way. If someone performs well, what it means is they can be ruled out for cognitive impairment that comes with diseases like Alzheimer's, strokes, or multiple sclerosis. That's it. So you see, acing this test does not make Trump a genius. It just makes him a guy who's desperate for an accomplishment. Now, one reason Trump keeps bringing up this test is that he thinks it shows that he's more mentally sharp than Joe Biden. But yesterday, Joe Biden said the real issue isn't what's in Trump's brain, it's what's inside his heart. Joe Biden tonight calling out Mr. Trump as the country's first racist president. We have racists and they've existed. They've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has. That's what he told a worker who expressed concern that the president blames China for the coronavirus pandemic. All right, all right. Uh, I understand the point Biden was trying to make, but Donald Trump is obviously not the first racist American president. Because Biden calling Trump the first racist president is like calling LeBron the first black NBA player. I mean, he may be the best right now, but there were a lot before him. And don't get me wrong. It was extremely racist when Trump wouldn't let black people live at his properties. But those early presidents wouldn't let black people not live at their properties. In fact, just to summarize some of what we know of American presidents, 12 of them owned slaves, so right off the bat, they're out, right? 
Woodrow Wilson openly supported the Klan. FDR threw Japanese Americans in internment camps. LBJ routinely used the N-word in private. Nixon used racial slurs against pretty much every race and religion imaginable. Reagan called African leaders monkeys who are uncomfortable wearing shoes. And that's just the shit that we know about. I mean, I don't know who this guy is, but look at those mutton chops. He was probably racist. That's like racist hairstyle. You know the thing when you choose from the list? Which one do you want? I want that one. Racist? Yeah, hell yeah. So look, Biden was clearly wrong about this. In fact, he was so wrong that with our help, Trump has now turned his gaffe into a new attack ad. Gaffe machine Joe Biden is added again, claiming that Donald Trump is the first racist president. He's the first one, the first one. The first one. But the truth is, Donald Trump is just one of many racist presidents. In fact, historically speaking, very few presidents weren't racist. And one of them was black. So this November, vote for Donald Trump, the only candidate racist enough to be president. I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Whew, devastating. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll tell you about America's new pastime, reenacting the Spanish flu. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. It's no secret that America is struggling with the coronavirus. And part of the reason is that hardly anyone alive has ever seen a pandemic like this before. In fact, to find the closest one, you have to go back over a hundred years. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says this current pandemic may match the horror of 1918's flu epidemic. This is a pandemic of historic proportions. I think we, we, we can't uh, deny that fact. It's something that I think when history looks back on it, it'll be comparable to what we saw in, in 1918. Yes, to find something similar to corona, you have to go back to 1918. That's way back. Like back before they even invented smiling. Would you like to try smiling? But this is a picture. I know, do something crazy. No, you're right, it won't work. But what has America learned since the 1918 Spanish flu? Well, it turns out, not a lot. As we'll see in another installment of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. The Spanish flu of 1918 had a lot in common with the coronavirus in 2020. It infected millions around the globe. It spread easily through the air, through coughs and sneezes. And through most of it, we were wiping our butts with old newspapers. But the real similarities between these two pandemics is in how American society responded. For example, in both eras, the pandemic spread even further thanks to the mismanagement of the federal government. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, Mr. Trump has downplayed the severity of the problem as cases surge around the country. Woodrow Wilson during World War One tried to minimize the Spanish flu epidemic. Woodrow Wilson pretended it wasn't happening, did not let people know how to protect themselves. The president effectively discarding the existing advice from his government, his own public health experts. Woodrow Wilson encouraged public events. He told mayors and governors to have military parades. Despite public 
warnings against mass gatherings, President Trump is encouraging thousands of people to gather for a fireworks display. You had national public health leaders saying such things as, this is ordinary influenza by another name. View this the same as the flu. The Surgeon General said, if proper precautions are taken, you have no cause for alarm. This is no reason to panic at all. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. Uh-huh. Trump is making all the same mistakes that Woodrow Wilson once made. And I mean, I know we said we want him to be more presidential, but not that president. Sometimes it seems like Trump is a Frankenstein, but made up of only the worst parts of all previous presidents. You know, he's got the pandemic response of Woodrow Wilson, the racism of Andrew Jackson, the horniness of Bill Clinton, the vocabulary of George W. Bush, and it's all stuffed into Taft's body. Now, in both 1918 and today, the lack of leadership created a vacuum that allowed misinformation and dangerous cures to be spread as fast as the virus itself. As the coronavirus continues to spread worldwide, the misinformation is spreading too. Donald Trump is pushing the debunked conspiracy that coronavirus was man-made in a lab in Wuhan, China. The pandemic spread benefited from misinformation. People began blaming the Germans, claiming they were spreading poison clouds or that Bayer, which was a German-owned company, had infected their aspirin. The president offers snake oil treatments that have the potential to do more harm than good. The president suggested Americans could inject themselves with disinfectants to ward off COVID-19 the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute. Snake oil salesman had a field day. Vicks VapoRub also advertised itself as a remedy for the flu, claiming to stimulate the mucous membrane to throw off the germs. There were plenty of ads touting medicines, tablets, and the use of disinfectants. People back in the day were so dumb. They thought you could spread flu through aspirin? I mean, everyone knows that diseases are spread through 5G. Hello? That's why you turn on airplane mode. I'll be honest, I actually admire conspiracy theorists back then because they didn't have YouTube to spread their ideas, which means to get people to believe this stuff, they had to go door to door. Good day, ma'am. The Rockefellers are inventing a flu vaccine that'll record your thoughts. To hear more, please like and subscribe. I'll return here again in a few days. And if you like what I have to say, well, I recommend my friend who's gonna tell you why the Earth is really flat. By the way, I'm willing to bet money that that VIX conspiracy was actually started by an African dad because they, they try and fix everything with VIX. Daddy, I'm sad. Can I get a hug? You don't need a hug from me. You know what you need? You need to put some VIX on your chest, huh? It will warm up your heart, okay? <laughs> now go away. And here's the thing. What we saw in 1918 and we're seeing again today is that the lack of trust in leadership doesn't just cause the wrong treatments to spread. It also makes it much harder for the right treatments to spread. Cities recommended face masks, though many residents didn't take that suggestion seriously. Despite the alarming spike, many people still refuse to wear masks. A mask mandate followed, but not everyone complied. Masks are mandated here. Not everyone likes the rule. You guys are violating federal law, Did you get that? One woman declared the ordinance, quote, absolutely unconstitutional. They say that it interferes with their personal liberty and it's unconstitutional. The anti-mask sentiment actually coalesced into something organized. Thousands protested mandatory masking measures. Are you going to allow the government to tell you you have to wear a mask? No! You know, it's bad enough that people today don't want to wear masks, but why wouldn't people in 1918 wear masks? I mean, the past smelled like shit all the time. Forget the flu.
I would have worn a mask just not to smell the horse crap and the pre-running water BO. I also wish that I could tell all the anti-mask people today that masks actually helped bring an end to the Spanish flu. Yeah, but knowing some of these haters, they'd be like, oh yeah, but if masks work so well, then how come everyone who lived through that period is dead now? I will say, it is depressing that it's been 100 years and masks are still our best invention for stopping a pandemic. Because I mean, if someone traveled in a time machine from 1918, they'd get here like, I've traveled into the future. Pray do tell, what ways can you stop a virus? Do you have nose lasers? No, we, we've got a mask. It's still a mask? Yes, but now it's blue. So the sad truth is, so far, America has repeated all the mistakes with corona that it made during the Spanish flu. And if Americans don't do the very un-American thing of learning from history, then 2020 will be bound to repeat the worst of 1918, the second wave. Backlash from business owners pressured cities to reopen. As cities eased guidelines, some were hit with a second wave of the flu. St. Louis, Birmingham, and Omaha saw an increase in cases after lifting closures. Denver reopens on November 10th. With all restrictions on distancing lifted, thousands flocked to the streets for an Armistice Day celebration. No more than 10 days later, signs that the city opened back up too soon became clear as the death toll rises again. In San Francisco, when the cases went almost down to zero, the city said, let's open up the city, let's have a great big parade, we'll all take off our masks together. Because of that event, two months later, the great influenza came back roaring. Yeah, that's something we all have to keep in mind. The lesson of 1918 is that bringing crowds back too soon will bring the virus back too. So as much as I hate to say it, we actually need to get Trump reelected. Yeah, because if there's anyone who knows how to keep a crowd size down, it's him. So that's where we are. It's clear that nothing has really changed since 1918, except for the fact that now, our clothing shows off our butts. And just like with the Spanish flu, America has ignored the spread of COVID-19 until it was too late. And even now, America isn't taking the steps needed to flatten the curve. But remember, it's not too late to learn from history. So, America, put on a mask, socially distance, because the way things are going right now, by the time 2120 comes around, there won't be anyone left to learn from our mistakes. When we come back, Desi Lydic will check in on her uncle, Rudy Giuliani. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. You know, in these corona times, everyone is keeping in touch with their relatives with Zoom calls. And that includes our very own Desi Lydic. Now, a few weeks ago, we were shocked to learn that one of Desi's distant relatives is Fox News anchor Janine Pirro. And now, we also just found out that Desi is also related to Rudy Giuliani, which is insane. Yeah, he's her uncle on her second cousin's married side, thrice divorced. So just this week, Desi checked in with Uncle Rudy to see how he's holding up during the pandemic. Hey, Uncle Rudy. Yeah, I, I saw a deformed potato in the store and it reminded me that I hadn't checked in with you in a while. You, uh, you doing okay with the whole pandemic and everything? Not doing as well now. Oh. Sorry to hear that. Are, are you staying busy? You know, I found it really helpful to stick to a schedule, like a, a daily agenda. Interesting. Yeah, it's actually been really- George Soros set out on his own agenda. Oh God. Uh, Uncle Rudy, can we please not do the George Soros stuff again? It's a Marxist agenda. It's an anarchist agenda. Let's just not talk politics. This is planned by Black Lives Matter. It's funded by Soros to the tune of 30 or $40 million. Wait, uh, I'm sorry. Black Lives Matter and George Soros want what exactly? They want your property. They want the government to control it. 
but they do want one preferred class, and that's the people who are going to all they're going to get like a lifetime salary. That does not make any sense. And that's going to be the black black people will get that, uh, and they'll also get to choose property that they want, and that's the reparations for for slavery. Uncle Rudy, that's not how reparations work. What are you even talking about? This Marxist terrorist-inspired document. Please, let's talk about something else. I'm, I'm thinking about painting the kids' room a different color, like a, like a fun yellow or something. What about all the people that do uh, uh, all the crazy painting on walls and stuff like that? The graffiti people. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I think I'm probably just gonna do it myself. Anything else new? Have, have you guys seen Hamilton yet? I don't want a group that hates white people, that hates America, that has been organized by Marxists and funded by terrorists. I don't want that seen by my children. Jesus, everything tracks back to Marxism with you. I, I, I bet if I said the word puppies, the first words that would come into your mind are- Communism, Marxism, socialism. See, exactly. All right, I, I really, I gotta go because I, I, I'm pretty behind on some stuff. Maybe we'll talk again sometime. We have got to get together. We have to be together. I could take you to Philadelphia or St. Louis or Minneapolis. Oh, I'm, I'm not really doing planes right now. But um, yeah, I would love to go to St. Louis with you when things calm down a bit. I'm just, I'm, I'm super busy right now. So are Marxists, by the way. There you go. Couldn't help yourself. Okay, talk again in a month. Bye. Wow, you're a great niece, Desi. After the break, I'll be speaking to renowned therapist Esther Perel, and she'll help you figure out how not to break up during coronavirus. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Esther Perel, psychotherapist, author, and host of the hit podcast, Where Should We Begin? We talked about dating and counseling couples during the pandemic. So if you're a couple and you're in the pandemic, this is for you. Esther Perel, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. I am so socially distant from you right now as well. The name Esther Perel, people think of the books like Mating in Captivity. People think of the TED Talks. People know you as somebody who talks about the complexities of dating in the modern world. But now, the modern world is a completely different world. And so I'm, I'm sure as, as a therapist who talks to so many different couples, you've seen what coronavirus has done to relationships. So let's start with the, with the most basic thing. Has coronavirus been good or bad for people's relationships? There's only two options, right? <laughs> you know, people have sometimes either complained about being too close, too much together, 24 seven on top of each other and wanting more air, or people have longed for more connection, more closeness, more contact because they've been too far apart. So on some level, in, at the extremes, people have either felt too much or too little. That's one thing I would say that's really fundamentally changed at this moment. But basically, when you have a pandemic, when you have a disaster, it intensifies everything and it functions as a relationship accelerator. What it means is that you have a sense of uncertainty. You don't know where we're going. We still don't know where we're going. There's a prolonged sense of uncertainty. There's a deep unknown. And as a result, there is also a sense of mortality that is hovering over you. So people are saying life is short. And when life is short, you start to push all the superfluous overboard and you hone in on the essential and the priorities. And you basically say, what am I waiting for? 
Hence, let's get married, let's have babies, let's move. Or I've waited long enough. I've been here one day, <laughs> I'm out of here. And hence, we know from, from past disasters that it's often a proliferation of babies and divorces that follow pandemics. Wow, a proliferation of babies and divorces. What, what a way to think of, of, of coronavirus and its effect on us as human beings. On your podcast, it was really interesting because you spoke to couples in quarantine. What have you found are some of the things that have helped couples and what are some of the things that hinder couples who either have to spend all their time together or all their, all their time apart? So, you know, what I looked at in Where Should We Begin was exactly that. What are the, the acute stressors that directly influence the way that the couples are either getting along or not getting along at this moment? What happens when you have a complete overhaul of the roles? One person doesn't have his job or her job. In this case, in the Sicilian couple, in where should we begin? The man loses his job. She works as a doula in the hospital. She has to go every day. She has the three young children. And the entire structure of the family has changed overnight. In addition, they were kind of already living with a rather big rift between the two of them. And suddenly they find themselves thrown into a whole different level of interdependence. So you have different coping styles and you have really a sense of exacerbation of our coping styles. It's not negative per se. What makes it good is when the complementarity exists between people and one says, you know, you're good at this, I'm good at that, and these two are both necessary. What is not so helpful is when one person says to the other, my coping strategy is the right strategy. Why are you worried? Or the other one who says, you're not taking enough precautions. That's the classic right. at this moment. And each person thinks that their, the, the way they manage their fear is actually the right way of being in the world. I think what you said earlier on is something that we, we have to address considering what's been happening, and that's been the stresses. The stresses in the relationship, the tensions, the conflicts that have been exacerbated from America to South Africa to India to all over the globe, we've seen a dramatic rise in domestic abuse within relationships. Is there something that we attribute that to? Is it something that was always going to happen or does coronavirus make it happen? And then how do we deal with it in society? How, how do couples or even groups of people deal with this issue that's causing so many women to be domestically abused in, in a way that they weren't before? And children. Um, but look, I think that what happens is that when, in this instance, because it, not all domestic violence is on the side of men. Sometimes we talk about 15% being on the side of women, but pre pre predominantly it's on the men's side. When you lose your job, when you can't provide, when you lose your status, when you feel, you, when you feel worthless, when you have money worries, when the stress becomes acute, you have all the conditions that kind of agony is the right conditions for domestic violence and violence against children. It's been like this throughout. And for some, sometimes the very fact that their partner can't protect themselves and can't go out exacerbates the power that they have over them. You're trapped with me. And if you really want to go out, go see what will happen to you. So what if we do, there's all kinds of things that societies have tried with apps, with codes, where women can go to the supermarket and they can give the code and they can identify themselves as being vulnerable, as being in danger, as needing to be removed, as being able to go to the hospital. There are systems that are trying to create safe places, but no, you don't just have the, the, the system in place before. So 
um, you want to try to make sure that people maintain as much as possible a job or have a sense of security. You want to take away those exacerbators that are likely to help you strike. You always talk about how, you know, we, are, we have multiple relationships with people, even if it is the same relationship. As things change and we change, we move into different r relationships. So as the world changes, do you think people should take a, like a restock of their relationship and what they're looking for and, and what they're currently in because they're living in a new world? Because someone may say, I wanted to be married, but not if it means the person is here 24 hours a day. Or I wanted to be, you know, more single and free, but not if it means that I'm alone 24 hours a day. Is this the time for people to take stock or is it not the time because it's coronavirus? I think that people are taking stock no matter what. People realize I didn't mean to be with the person. We, we, we went, we quarantined together and I realized I could never have done this alone. I am so grateful for the presence of this other person. Right. So it goes all over the place. It also is the fact that at this moment, if you work at home, you also have all your roles at the same table, on the same chair. You are the CEO or you are the worker and you are the parent and you are the teacher and you are the child of and you are the partner and you are the lover. I mean, there is no differentiation between your roles. And so that in itself is exhausting. That's part of why these boundaries are so important. We have unprecedented expectations of our relationships, both in the romantic sphere and in the work sphere. You know, secularization has made it so that we expect from our relationship meaning, belonging, and community. It's like a whole village. And I think that in a moment like this, there, we know that mental health is deeply connected to social connection. And that means right. that even if you can't see people, which is not necessarily the case, you can take walks with people, you can call them, you can, you know, it doesn't all have to be on Zoom. The essential important thing here is to not think that because you are confined with one person, it means that you are, your whole life is with one person. Right. Your whole life needs all the connections, if not more so. And in fact, people began at first to call people that they hadn't seen in years. Just how are you? What have happened to you? Like they went through their memory lane, you know. And one is stay connected socially. And two is be helpful to others. When you're helpful to others, even your neighbors who you never met before, you actually feel less passive and less helpless in the face of this big unknown. And those two things are essential elements of mental health. It's relation, it's basically relational health. Well, I could talk to you for hours on this, but uh, I guess that's why you have the podcast and that's why you have the books. Hopefully we'll have you back on again after coronavirus to figure out how we, we uh, tweak our relationships now that we're free again and we're seeing strangers in the street for the first time. Yes, the <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the Social Distancing Show. Bye, bye Trevor. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, I just wanted to remind you that America is facing a nationwide poll worker shortage. And that's because most poll workers are over 60 and coronavirus is still out there, so they cannot show up. But fewer poll workers means that there are fewer polling stations open, and it means there's gonna be longer lines that not everybody can afford to wait in, especially in communities of color. But now here's the good news. Most poll working is paid. Yeah, uh, paid. And in some states, you can be as young as 16 to work. Over the past two weeks, we've partnered with Power to the Polls to ask you to be a poll worker, and over 40,000 of you have already signed up. So thank you to every single one of you who are giving your time to save your granny and protect democracy. Until next week, stay safe out there, wash your hands, and I'll see you at the glory hole.
The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 